Thank you, Jules, for coming on the podcast and taking the time to join me today. I really appreciate it. You are the founder and CEO of Otoy and also the founder of Render Network, a decentralized GPU rendering platform. You've got a super interesting perspective and uh, sort of vision for the future that you've been building towards for 20 plus years now. And uh, so very much looking forward to the conversation and it's been a blast prepping for it. Uh, before we dive into you know, the more particular details, I think the best place to start would be to understand your story a little bit for those who don't know you, who, the, who are not familiar with Render or Otoy or anything like that. And if you could start sort of as early as you're willing to, to kind of tell the origin story a little bit, some of the decisions you've made um, to get to where you are today. Absolutely. Well, Jay, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, my origin story, um, you know, it's, you know, my background is in computer graphics, uh, you know, I, uh, and, and I, I, you know, that covers a lot, right? I, I started with a deep interest in video games as well as, as filmmaking and, and, and linear content. And I think, you know, there's one part of my story. I, I walked onto the San Monica Pier when I was a child and there was one video game that stood out among the rest. It was almost like a shining light, a spotlight on this versus everything else. This was in the era when there was Pac-Man and, and, you know, Space Invaders, nothing crazy with graphics. And here was Dragon's Lair. It was a Disney quality movie and there was a joystick. And I was like, what, what, what am I looking at? Like this thing is, looks like a film, but you can interact with it. You can play with it. And of course, you know, it, it, it was basically a movie where you could skip around to the different parts, but it was designed in a way that gave you this interactivity. And it changed me. It changed my childhood mind and brain um, in a really fundamental way. And I wanted to be, I, I knew whatever I was going to do in life was somehow going to be related to this this concept of being able to experience things and 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 have computers get to the point where the graphics are so real that they look like reality, but still have the agency as a, as a viewer or as a video game player or somebody that interacts with them to to have those experiences. That to me felt like the future of storytelling, the future of of, of art. Um, and and weirdly enough, a few years later, um, you know, an episode of Star Trek. I love Star Trek since I was three years old. I, I you know, old school that way. Um, but there was the first episode of Star Trek The Next Generation in 87, and they walked into the, a room on the Starship Enterprise called the Holodeck. And in that room, everything that I had been thinking about for those years as a kid had, had, was presented there. You know, it was a room where you could render anything. You didn't have to wear a pair of glasses. You could interact with it. There was a bit of AI that would make the, you know, you want to have a Sherlock Holmes story in, in you know, Victorian England. It, it, it would do all that. And that was like, oh, this is an even better version of, of, of how I want to see and experience these things. And the holodeck was, you know, Star Trek, I mean, everything is explained pretty technically. It's a whole, you know, it's just a room with, you know, turn off the holodeck and it, you can see it's just a bunch of, um, you know, tiles and panels. Um, but it could create these holograms in thin air, you could touch them. And I wanted to build tools that would make that content happen. And I feared somebody at some point is going to create the hardware to display it. So, you know, you, you skip ahead to my teenage years. I was, um, you know, my mother really was intent on me going to Harvard University. She thought that was the path to whatever I wanted to do. I did get in, um, but only because I sent them the source code to all of this work I've been doing. I recreated Dragons or I had video compression. This is 91. Uh, and I had already started doing early 3D graphics work. And this is back on you know, Mac 2FX back in the days when there was almost no memory, there was nothing. And, uh, and I, I got in and I didn't want to go to college. I, I mean, I really wanted to just work in, in the industry doing video games, pursuing this sort of technology and seeing where it led. And within a few years of that, you know, I was still in my early 20s. Um, I put out a tool called 3D Groove, which was a plugin that you could use along with Macromedia, which is now part of Adobe. They used to have something called Flash before that was called Shockwave. 
and I allowed you to put 3D games, 3D content in a web browser. Um, and from there, like Otoy started up, you know, I would say maybe six years after that. So as you were pointing out, it's been about 20 something years. 2002 is when I officially got Otoy.com and, and, you know, two years later, I had articles being written about it. But my goal with Otoy and, and, and all the things that had led up to that point was to create a tool that would allow you to create beautiful CG graphics on video game hardware, which was something people didn't think was possible, to put that on the cloud and to also have it so that, you know, the cloud meaning, you know, GPUs, distributed, you know, nodes that would be out there could contribute, like at the time, SETI at Home, which is a well-known, you know, folding at home later, right, which is well-known distributed compute network. I wanted that to, be, to make it so that it was so inexpensive for people to have an idea create and, and render these things at a fidelity that would match what you could do in, in, in a movie that would cost a fortune to, to make, to make it simple, and also to allow it to be used for both video games, in other words, interactivity, and also for linear content, ideally both. And, you know, bonus points if I can get it to render on the, the holodeck whenever that's ready. So that was why I started Otoy. And 10 years after that, about, 12, well, I guess about 10 years ago or so, I put out, you know, really our first commercial product, which is one, one of the things we're best known for. Uh, Octane Render it was the first uh, GPU render. It could, it could basically do Pixar quality graphics on video game hardware back, you know, 12, 10 or 12 years ago when we were starting to do this, it was unheard of. And to this day, it's still, a, you know, ongoing great product. It's the center of the render network. We started with our own render. We've added others, uh, yeah, you know, since those 10 years have, have passed, other people have done GPU renders. We're not the only one. There's, there's a lot of different ways of doing it. Um, and I do think that the world is now at an inflection point, certainly with generative AI art where the concept of being able to imagine things and having that realized for you is coming very true. Um, the part where Otoy and, and the render network, you know, and they're separate pieces. I mean, they do connect, they, I started both, but they, you know, the render network is a decentralized organization. It's arm's length really from Otoy at this point. Um, the idea is that we enable these things to happen. And there's a lot of things in the last couple of years that have percolated to the public consciousness, the metaverse, um, NFTs, those things have value. Being able to have digital art that you can make money off of and your art is seen by everyone, the provenance is there, very important. The metaverse being able to experience things spatially, ultimately in the holodeck, very important. I think the gold rush to sort of exploit some of those things has, has kind of poisoned the well for how people perceive those things, but they're still very much goals that I have in mind of, of making those things done right. Um, and then we have Apple finally putting out a pair of, of glasses of, of mixed reality goggles that are insane. That'll give people a very first taste of probably what a holographic experience will be like. And then beyond that, we've invested in a company called Lightfield Lab that's built holographic display panels uh, that without any glasses, it's the Star Trek holodeck was inspired by the very same episode. And those are coming out in the next few years to theme parks, to location-based entertainments, and probably in the 2030s, it'll be in people's homes. I will pause there, but that's my origin story. Yeah, that's a, a great overview and there's plenty of places to plug in, but I'd like yeah. to uh, pull on the thread a little bit on these like holographic displays because people are yeah. pretty familiar with, you know, VR has sort of like gone through these hype cycles over the years as technologies do. People are like, this is the next big thing. Then next thing you know it, oh, this is never going to happen. And it keeps going sort of up <laughs> and down the hype cycle. And now we have, you know, obviously a few years ago or several years ago, we had kind of Oculus through the various iterations. Now we've got Apple coming out, um, but what people, I mean, it's not on, it wasn't on my radar and I don't think it's on nearly as many people's radar is you talk about these like hardware enabled holograph situations. Uh, can you just kind of <laughs> describe better, you know, in, in more detail how that, um, you know, plays alongside, like obviously you put on the Apple 
headset and you have these things that are sort of visibly in the room, even if they're not there. But you're talking about something where you don't even have to put on a headset at all. And these yep. holograms are sort of visible to the naked eye. What is, you know, is that something that you think is underrated relative to AR and VR? Yeah, I think it is. But I also think it's so hard that if people are, I mean, one thing I've been very good at doing over the last, I mean, more than 20 years, right, is just picking a trend that's like five or 10 years out, like GPUs, GPU rendering, GPU rendering the cloud, decentralized GPU rendering, AI on GPUs. And, you know, being so early that I just sometimes have to wait or just build towards something. And that's the thing with, with Lightfield displays. I mean, most people haven't seen one. I mean, I invested in the company seeing just a small little prototype that was six inches, but I, don't, but I knew how it worked. And I knew what my software could do. And I knew that if I had hardware that could, I mean, the way that it works is you can think of it this way. What's the consumer version of what a holographic display will be? There's probably two that'll be really easy for people to understand. The first is, you know, you can go now and get a Hisense 100 inch TV or 98 inch TCL TV for about $4,000, $3,000, right? It's getting down, but those are 100 inch TVs, 4K. And that's probably going to be the standard for a lot of people as those prices go down to the hundreds of dollars, right? And we've seen TVs get larger. Now imagine that you have a 100 inch TV that is a window and whatever is on the other side of the window is no different than looking out of a window, right? Or just looking into, into space. And it's still clipped. You still have a, a frame around that window, but it's 100 inches. And you can have more of them. I mean, you can have, you know, you, if you want to replace your windows with, with these kinds of TVs or these holographic panels, you could. But the simplest and most obvious use case is, well, 3D movies, right, don't need glasses. I mean, you know, the thing that killed 3D TV is, and, and still, to be honest, makes going to 3D movies a pain, is you got to put on even a pair of polarized glasses, which weigh nothing, was, was too much. You know, people, 3D TV died. And it's not because there wasn't content. A lot of movies were done in 3D. 3D is not tough to generate or create. That's going to all happen again with the Apple headset. But the holographic TV will be able to give you perfect 3D without any glasses, look at split. It gets better though. If you actually render for that display, you don't just get left to right eye. You just you don't get like sort of VR kind of video. You get something very different. You get something that looks absolutely the same as if you're looking at it with your naked eye in reality. And the difference between that and VR is what a light field is. In other words, you can put a telescope through that and you can see into that lighthouse in the distance even with that 100 inch tv you can put a magnifying glass on something and it'll work and your eyes will converge you can have depth of field and focus things that people are just not that familiar with because even with vr those effects are just they're not in there like magically when they're trying to raise you know whatever billions of dollars early early on when they're trying to build their display you know for, for glasses right it was meant to have that light field thing in there they couldn't pull it off it's very tough but these panels We'll do that. And a 100-inch TV that does that is a window into anything is a very simple proposition, especially when people want to you know, experience something that is immersive and at a large size. The second light field display, which I think is even more useful, is something that would replace what you have on your desk. In other words, a table like you know Tony Stark and Iron Man, where things pop off the table and you can touch them. And these light field displays do have the ability to see where your fingers are. I mean, heck, even the Vision Pro has perfect finger tracking and perfect depth estimation. Um, and Lightfield Lab is working on something that uses ultrasonics to give you a basic sense of touch. So if you push on something, you can feel the feedback, right? That kind of thing where you have something on your table, in addition to having, let's say, something in your you know, living room TV or whatever, or your wall, is going to be really useful for work and productivity. Um, and the way that these holograms work is that they, you can have something that pops up off the surface up until the edge of that surface. So if you had a really long table, you could have a really tall holographic object. Um, and that's the, that's one limitation. Um, if you make if you extend that surface to an entire room, if you decide to convert your garage and have all six surfaces in your garage 
converted a holographic display panel, you have a holodeck and you literally never see the edge of it. You can have anything you want in there. So the holodeck, even though it was supposed to be hundreds of years of the future, is literally possible. I mean, it's tens of millions of dollars. I've, I've asked, you know, I want one, but it's, it's out of my, my budget. Um, you know, but I think the practical version of these things is going to be in, in form factors that we, you know, can understand. I mean, you know, it's also going to be in tablets. It's like, you know, Life Lab is, I think their investors include, uh, you know, Samsung and LG and, and, and others, right? So it's like those, these, these will be licensed. They'll be like OLED displays, right? They'll be in everything, including probably future goggles. But the magic is that you will not need to wear anything to experience a lot of the things that are now being created and imagined around, you know, let's call it spatial computing. I mean, Apple's version is really interesting to me because, you know, you have a full on computer on your head, you have 4K per eye. These are things that have never existed before in a pair of goggles. But you know, they're still it's still something on your face. Um, and and you can't share that with somebody else exactly, right? So if you have something that's totally organic, I think that's the future of frankly, windows, like things that are, you know, if you're in an apartment, you're, you know, you, you can have any wallpaper you want, you can have any window you want, you can have any view you want, you can be anywhere. All of the things that have technology and screens and, you know, Apple's done a lot of work to try to make it so that the glasses don't feel like they're getting in the way of you and the experience. That's why it's mostly a pass-through device. That's why you see the eyes on the front, but you don't need any of that with holographic panels. And technically those things are, you know, they're 4,000 DPI, something crazy. So one meter, you know, 100 is gonna be gigapixels, something way beyond anything that you deal with 4K or VR. Um, rendering to that is, is tough, but that's why the render network exists. You can recreate anything you want in the render network, it just costs a little more. Um, and we're already seeing the creating VR content, creating content for the MSG sphere on the render network. I mean, these are, you know, multiples over a 4K video, but that's, that's where things are heading. And as the render network becomes more efficient, it's going to probably time itself in a way where these, you know, these light field displays, these holographic panels will probably end up, you know, shipping to users at the time where it's going to cost about the same to render for that as it would for the, you know, pair of VR glasses. So I'll pause there. Yeah, I've seen, uh, you know, what you guys are capable of with Otoy and, you know, these sort of next generation graphics. It's just pretty incredible quality video. And that's, you know, not even getting into what you're talking about now. Um, and obviously want to get into the render network and the importance of sort of uh, better making more efficient this market for GPUs, essentially, and uh, utilizing underutilized GPU assets around the world. Yeah. Uh, but before we get there, I want to sort of tee up how you got here in the first place. And we, we went through the origin story, but, uh, and you, you know, you talked about deferring your Harvard acceptance, never <laughs> ended up going there, um, everything like that. There was one interesting story that I read up on, which was uh, Ari Emanuel, uh, CEO mm. of William Morris Endeavor, uh, I think sort of discovered you fairly early on. And uh, I understand like he offered you a million dollars within like a month of meeting you, you were living at at home at the time and you know yep. at your mom's house and you were like i i can't take the money uh, i'm working on something that's like way more valuable than than that and um you know this would be a distraction um mm -hmm. and like how did you have you know most people like you get offered a million bucks like you 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 know you take the money and, and you go and build something or whatever you've been it seems like laser focused like you know another sort of parallel just sort of observation is that you've been you know we casually mentioned at the top you've been working on this for I think Otoy, you said 21 years ago in general yep. in space for like 25 plus years. Most people don't stick with something that long beginning mm -hmm. when they're like a teenager. So yep. what's like sort of, I mean, obviously there's the Star Trek inspiration and stuff like that, but what has sort of enabled this obsession to remain ongoing and um, has given you, you know, you mentioned also like you sort of 
have been early um, to a lot of things where it's like, you know, there's always the why now question and um, rarely, you know, if you're too late, it's sort of obvious. Uh, if the time is right, it's it's not always obvious. And if you're early, it's it sort of blurs the line between being being at the right time and being early. It's kind of hard to tell, um, especially if you're very forward thinking. So what has sort of kept you on this on this track for, you know, 20, 25 years? Well, obviously, I have a deep passion for all of this. I mean, that's, you know, and that started from childhood. So that's always been part of who I am. Um, it's not hard for me to get up in the morning or sometimes not sleep at all. And sometimes I sleep up for a week and just work on stuff. And so when Ari and I, I mean, Ari is, is like family. I mean, you know, he's, I, it's been about 19 years since he showed up, maybe more than 19 years since he showed up at my mom's house that, on that Friday night in the Valley. And so what I was doing, and he did offer a million dollars. And I did, I, the main thing was, I was like, this would be great at some point in the future. But right now, like I have two more years of coding, just me alone, drinking, you know, Code Red, which is the, <laughs> my, my coding thing. I still, still drink it a few here and there to take it for the day. But um, and, and, you know, and it, I said, it's going to take like at least 18 months before I have pieces like cloud rendering, ray tracing on GPUs. I was in the middle of all these things. And it was funny because at the time he'd heard about me because the New York Times was writing an article on Otoy. Otoy didn't exist. It was just me and my mom's house. Um, but they still wrote the article and it was after he had met me. Uh, and so you could see the prototype pieces that were there. But I, I, you know, I basically, I won't stop until I'm, until there's a holodeck and until the world is as right as it can be with the things that I'm doing. Um, I have things, I want to tell stories. I use my own products. Like I use the render network and I use Octane and I'm sure I love Star Trek. And yes, now we are working on Star Trek stuff. I should also mention my best friend's dad created Star Trek. I grew up in Gene Roddenberry's house with him. And, you know, we, it, it's, it's part of the DNA of everything I'm doing, but there's part of it that's passion. There's also a part of it that, you know, I see a lot of things that, that I've, you know, when I started 20 years ago in Otoy proper, I was like, there's a lot of missing pieces that people are just missing. Like there should be GPU rendering and ray tracing should be a thing. And, you know, cloud streaming, right? This is before cloud gaming was even known. I was one of the first to even show that working before OnLive or Guy hired these others. You know, I was like, these things should exist. And, I don't, and I'm a one-man band. I mean, this is before I had anyone really working for me or with me. I mean, back in, in those early 2000s. I built all that. I wrote, I wrote the codex. I wrote all of that and I made it all work. And that's in 2006 when Ari really came back. It wasn't to give me money. It was to help me build a business, you know, to help me get proper investors. And what, what sort of gave me that focus to even say no or even wait was that I, you know, but the, in 2002, I'd already been doing this for about a decade. You know, it's like I was, I, I had, you know, I had other businesses that didn't quite work. Um, all versions of this, but in some ways, I just felt like I needed to build this probably years of this on my own, prove everything out and also run the company and, and be the CEO effectively. I, I never was in, in previous things. I just wanted to code and build things and not necessarily own how it how it went out. And that was that was a mistake. Um, on the other hand, when, when I did get things working and I did invest those years of just pure focus in those early 2000s, things started to get really interesting. And I had enough of those pieces working that then it made sense to get investors, to get a larger team, to build things around it. And I still have that focus. I mean, some people, even with a render network, you know, I've, I'm very flexible with how things go, but I'm also perfectly happy to wait. I mean, some of the patents I've taken out are, I mean, they're about to expire because they're 20 years old, but they, there's things that have, that, that take sometimes a decade to play out. And I can't help it if, when, when there's a case where I see something so clearly that I just know that it's just a matter of time. And it's something I cared about, you know, not just on the financial reward aspect of it. It's mostly just because I think the technology is going to be amazing and life-changing. And computer graphics are part of that. I mean, even the, the as as crazy as AI is, there's still the aspect of AI that is visual, that is a, you know, part of a medium of, of creation that 
I think is the most interesting part of it. Um, and I, you know, I think that my devotion to the end is to the end goal is something that is not, it's not like super rare, but it's not, you know, everywhere either. A lot of people just, they see an opportunity, like I, I mean, NFTs and metaverses. And I'm like, you know, I, those are things I care deeply about. Digital goods are a huge fundamental part of why the render network exists in metaverse as well. And I'm sad that people were trying to build an 18 month plan around something like that. I mean, I can understand the opportunity for that, but I, I you know, there is still years ahead of that, you know, in terms of making that work. I, I had the pleasure of actually getting to know Neil Stevenson and we talked about the metaverse a lot and he agrees with me like this, yeah, you need to take your time to do it right. And doing it right, I think, is, is a huge reward. I mean, it does end up with success. I mean, you know, Toy's been a very successful company, and it took a long time to have a product like Octane that would, that would generate the kind of revenues that it's doing now and that helped us get Render going. And for Render to, you know, when we launched it, it wasn't that big of a deal. People didn't you know, think about it or know about it that much. But now it's become you know, the top 50, you know, yeah, coin or token or, you know, thing on, on, the, on the, you know, on chain. Um, and I, I foresee that, you know, waiting, doing this right and long term is going to, you know, is going to provide a lot of things, but to other people as well, not just selfishly the render network or, or even Otoy, but to anyone that's participating in this ecosystem. And some of those uh, secondary effects are like people, you know, who've been using our tools for years, obviously his talent is his talent, um, but it was amazing, you know, we got on the cover of Time Magazine and he, you know, graciously put our software Octane in the, the cover. I want to see everyone have that kind of opportunity. That's why the NFT space was so interesting to me is that people as artists could, can make money and a living with that. And that's, that's the future, even a post AI future, something like that is going to be very important where creativity is rewarded, good creativity. Um, but I'll, I will stop there. That's, that's a lot to your question. So. Yeah, no, that's great. And I, I think, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, discussing the metaverse with Neil Stevenson. Um, yeah. Obviously that's, it's a massive sort of concept and everyone has like their own different take. Um, my personal leaning, like, uh, you know, I, I don't really have like some sophisticated view and, and I would love to hear yours, but, um, my one thing that I sort of think about is that it's going to be sort of like a much more gradual transition that like, we are not yeah. fully not in the metaverse today. Like, look at, you know, I'm a, I'm a freaking avatar and, you know, I'm talking <laughs> to you guys through zoom. Like this is not us sitting in a room together. Um, and it's just going to be you know, you're no longer doing this on your laptop, you're doing this through your goggles. And maybe, you know, I don't know if you saw like the Lex Friedman Zuck interview. That yeah, was like I sort did. of a avatar uh, codex, your codec avatars. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That was it. Oh, that's that's interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap. I guess that technology that Facebook used or Meta used to make that happen is very related to your guys, uh, what is it, light stage? Light stage. Otoy, right? Yeah. I mean, we've we've been we've supply light stage scan to a lot of vendors, and you know, and that's not a secret. I used to work with John Carmack when they were starting up. Well, and sorry, I mean, when Oculus was bought by Facebook, we did a ton of stuff and I loved it. I love those years. I mean, you know, he's subsequently moved on to doing AI stuff and I love him. He's a genius, um, but we were doing stuff. And I remember that we were, you know, LifeSage has been a resource for people. I mean, even, you know, it, it is something if you're going to do faces of any kind, anything, whether it's AI or rendering, having that ground truth is really helpful. Um, and certainly for machine learning, obviously, I think the SAG after strike is just about to end, hopefully. But, you know, the big sticking point was digital doubles, scans of people, right? Um, we've been in that business longer than I've had, I think, Otoy. I mean, Otoy officially was like 2009 as an incorporated entity. I mean, I started, you know, the name and stuff was, was, was here before. But, but you know, LifeStage, I, I initially got my first investment around that in 2008. And we've been, every Marvel movie, every DC movie, every actor has been through our offices to get scanned. 
And it's, it's funny because I think that AI is, is, I mean, the interesting parts, of course, are large language models are very important. I mean, that's the, the, the thought vectors of the human, you know, genome or human consciousness, right? Isn't, you know, but then you have the, the visualization of people. I mean, if you, you know, you hear ChatGPT when you talk to it, right? They just added a talking, you know, voice in, voice out recently. It's pretty compelling. But, you know, when you're, when you're generating visual faces, um, both as a creator and both as AI trying to sort of match what you're thinking, you know, it's, it's tough. It's tough. Deep fakes are like, you know, the, the, the simple, the, the foam on the, on the ocean, right? I mean, there's such a depth to what you can be doing with, with human expression and experience. And this stuff with codec avatars is important because, again, if you're going to transmit something, you're, you're expressing your face holographically, you still need to scan it in. The display is only part of that. So what they're doing with codec avatars is really helpful. Obviously, both, you know, Apple's got something similar with Persona in the, uh, you know, in the Vision Pro. But, you know, there is, to be honest, the way that I look at the light field displays, and I've talked about this with John Carafin, the creator of that company, it's a two-way mirror. It's like it records holographically and transmits holographically. So if you're just looking through it, you're seeing a hologram that's being recorded as a hologram on the other side. And, you know, there's also the fact that AI is extremely good at taking a very few set of data points and figuring out the missing pieces. And that's what you kind of need to make this work at a much more efficient level, whether you're displaying holograms, recording them, or even rendering them. Yeah, I mean, so we, I think we got onto that by talking about like the, um, you know, the Zuck and, and Lex interview before that yeah. I was uh, getting at the metaverse and the gradual transition. And, and you seem to sort of agree with that. Do you have, you know, despite being the, uh, you know, being being early to a lot of things, and I, I read someone described you as like sort of the pioneer of a lot of technologies that have yet to be named, uh, basically, <laughs> like coming up with these things that don't quite have, uh, you know, basically don't have names yet. And then eventually, you sort of figure out what to call them. But um, do you have a sense of like where we are now in that transition and, um, you know, as hard as it is to tell the future, just what that vision in broad strokes looks like to you and, and what you mean, like when you say metaverse? Yeah. Well, I, I think that to your point, the metaverse is, it's like saying internet, not even the web, right? Just internet. It's, it's a protocol layer in the sense that, I mean, we have to figure out what made the internet interesting and the web was just part of it is we had, you know, formats for video. And we had formats for documents when the web was introduced. And then we had social media, which is a layer on top of those things. We need, or we need organizing formats for the metaverse. And some of those obvious ones are 3D models, right? You know, which, you know, to, to one of the projects that we started with Ronaberry, with my, my friend, was like archiving all of Star Trek, 800 hours and, and 60 years visually, including the production versions, being able to walk on those ships, right? So the way that those 3D models for the Starship Enterprise that we're building, life-size, one-to-one digital doubles, which if you look at NVIDIA Omniverse, like digital doubles of the real world is one aspect of how they consider the metaverse, right? Um, experiences that you can go into and experience in, you know, like a theme park is another aspect of the metaverse. But what are the 3D models for that? And I look at it as there is no one format. It's a platonic you know, version of like, we know what the ship's kind of supposed to be. We know the size of it. We've seen it filmed. But the, the depth of it all the way down to the atomic structure of, of the metals used on the beams or whatever is it's it's infinite in a sense. And so I think that the idea of the metaverse is you start with the idea of the thing, right? You know, the ship of Theseus component of, of the Starship Enterprise, literally that's even the theme in the in the show. And, you know, which is the the soul of it, the spirit of it, the form of it. And then, you know, how it's realized is something that's on demand. So, you know, if you look at the work we started two years ago, we're like, this is the Starship Enterprise, here are the blueprints. It's going to evolve. I mean, a hundred years from now, that asset will still exist. It's on chain. Like they actually are creating the 3D assets on chain. We can update them with newer versions. But this living document sort of thing is a, is an important part of that. It's an important part of 
assets is an important part of storytelling, video games, interactivity, components that work with each other. And that's just the data format. That's just the systems part of it. What makes all those things work is that computing is needed to maybe realize those things. You want to render a hologram of, of something that's in this archive or this data set on chain, boot up GPUs and do that. Have AI, you know, fill in the blanks or create something with it, boot up the GPUs and give it, give it that compute power. But the metaverse, the thing that trip people up is, is it a web, is, is it a 3D web? And I'm not so sure that it is. I think it's great that you can go to a, a web page and have a 3D experience. I mean, Apple fully supports WebXR on the Vision Pro. You can go in Safari and you can, you can fill up your eyeballs. But there's not a lot of like, it doesn't allow you to really bring things together or intersect things. That's the part that's missing. Like the web was a huge boon for, for everything. I mean, all the things that are now Appified started, you know, Facebook, Amazon, Google. I mean, heck, even Apple didn't have an app store. Everything was a web page back in, you know, 2007 or eight or whatever. And I think that, that the web needs something like that. I mean, I, one of our advisors to the, both projects, both Render and, and Otoy, Brandon Knight, created JavaScript, created Mozilla, created Firefox, created how the Brave browser, basic attention token. We need standards for that. And the metaverse, I think when it's not tied to a specific endpoint, like holographic displays are one way of viewing it, goggles are another, your phone and a web browser could be a third. It's what's behind it that matters. And it's the interoperability of that that matters. That's the, my, so Neil Stevenson showed up at my cigarette party and we met before, that's why I invited him. And he and I think the same way, like you, you want to be able to leave one world to go to the other. And there needs to be enough standards, not just like on the formats of how 3D data looks, but how you interact with things, how you, you know, how asset portability works. And that's why having things on chain where you can have royalty streams, that's why the crypto actually has a really important use case. That makes a lot of sense. And we're still missing that. I mean, Apple's, what's interesting to me about Apple doing the Vision Pro isn't so much the hardware, it's the fact that they've effectively built an entire operating system with the same degree of focus, maybe more so than they've have ever had on the iPhone or the iPad, which I think had maybe a few years of gestational development before they ended up at the point where they were shipped, whereas this thing has been seven or eight years in, in development Vision OS. And it's it's definitely going to keep, you know, it's a 1.0, right? But it, it is something where the ability to take things spatially and experiencing spatially and also have those exist outside of any one centralized data format is important. And also the metaverse starts with the idea of something. And in fact, that's my deep focus. Like the, the more interesting patents I've taken out, where I was like, oh, you were so early. Your 2009 patent on token-based rendering and billing was, you know, a great way of showing that you had the idea for render long ago, but there are other things where I'm like, you're totally, your brainstem is totally separated and you're just looking at, at thought vectors that are, that are overlaid as you look at things, as you experience things. And those are then scooped up in, in you know, in a, in a form that machine learning can then re, re, rebuild or re, represent for you. And those are, are not necessarily like, you know, concrete elements. Those are things that are like, this is the, the neural network, so to speak, or the engram of, of an idea of something. And you, we need ways of visualizing that. Maybe at some point, if I were to go way in the future beyond the light field displays, obviously BCI, um, non-intrusive, hopefully, where you have a direct connection, your brain is able to directly visualize and get inputs into things. I mean, I, I had the chance to, it was actually at Ari's wedding. I had, he said, gave me 15 minutes to talk to Elon on a, on a hill before they got married, Ari and his wife. And, and I did ask him about Neuralink. And, you know, the feedback I got from him was like, I mean, it's, 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 it's a ways off before you, you get to the point where you're, you're competing with the uh, yeah, bandwidth you get between computer to computer. But, you know, once I think he's done with getting this to work for medical purposes and people, you know, paralyzed people walking again, the idea is that, yeah, it's like something like that, that BCI interface can help, you know, bring us even deeper experiences, but the software and the vision for that has to matter. And the metaverse is, is you know, the word meta, right, means beyond. I mean, it's, it's effectively beyond sort of any of this sort of more 
you know, formulaic aspects of, of video games or even movies, it's, it's the, you know, when we love a movie, it's the story and the visuals combined that give us some, some sort of, you know, that move us and that give us that qualitative experience. And that's what's missing in the metaverse. We need something that incorporates all of that and allows us to remix and compose that. And that's going to take probably a bit of time. Um, one thing that might help is AI. AI can absolutely give us exponential, you know, you know, power to, to organize things, to create things, to explore things. I look forward to that. That's that's how I see AI, you know, factoring in in a positive way to all these things. Not to mention, you can have a story just like in the holodeck, where now all the NPCs, not player characters, can all have their own thoughts and their own experiences. Really, big missing piece of how, you know, I would imagine metaverse experiences where you can walk through the story and experience it would work if you had very simple conversation or natural language parser engines at the other side of that. Yeah, I mean, you talk about um, Neuralink, and I've generally sort of in, I don't know if I read this directly from you, or just in sort of prepping for this conversation. But I get this idea that um, a large motivation for you is basically closing the gap between having an idea and being able to make something amazing. And obviously, we've seen, you know, one example of this in, in recent history is basically like, uh, you know, Dolly, where you put in a prompt, and you get this like beautiful piece of art. Um, but what we're talking about now might be something where it's like a hologram or something that's moving or some graphics that are incredibly impressive and, and just taking that and um, working both on sort of closing that gap and making it, you know, a lower requirement for human time spent, human education required, um, sort of things that people don't know how to do that they need to learn how to do and everything like that. And also on the other side of it at the end game and like the product, just improving what that can be. Um, and I feel like that's sort of a, a large part of what you guys are focused on. Um, another thing that was really interesting to discover, you know, we talked about earlier, um, you know, the the scanning and uh, what you guys are doing with Lightstage and, uh, you know, Oculus did it or, or uh, Meta did it with, uh, you know, with Lex and, and Zuck. Um, something that, you know, you mentioned you got, you've had like every actor come in and, and sort of do that for movies, whether it's Marvel or whatever. Um, it seems that you had the like foresight on the importance of, those individual actors correct me if i'm wrong here but like basically owning their scans um yeah and that's not something that is like sort of overwhelmingly obvious to everyone but now yeah. um when you see sort of like ai and deep fakes and everything like this the um authentication and like provenance i know this is also important aspect yeah. of, of the render network um you sort of saw that like way in advance so maybe you could talk about that decision and then uh, sort of like segue that a little bit, um, because I do think it's relevant into um, how the vendor network enables that to be able to trace sort of ownership and authenticity and, and provenance back for all of these digital assets. Yeah, well, I'll start with the, with the um, you know, sort of where we started with getting people to own their own scans. So I think The Rock, I mean, because there's so many movies he came in for, you know, the, you know I don't know, there was a uh, you know, a couple of Disney movies, uh, Jungle Cruise, whatever, anything, you know, all, all the universal movies with um, uh, Fast and Furious. It's like the fourth time he's like, why don't I just own my own scan? Ari's like my agent, right? And and we had that idea even before he brought it up. I mean, Ari had been sending people to have life stage scans they would own to plant the seed. Because obviously he's a, yeah, I mean, you know, he's a talent agent. He owns, I mean, WME is massive, right? And, and, and even people that aren't his clients, he, he has enormous influence over. So he actually helped us build. We have the latest life speech we have was actually something he helped us get going. It's here in the actual the office I'm in right now. And the idea wasn't just to do, you know, service work for movies and stuff. It was to give the actors their ability to get scanned in so they would own it. 
And some of them got it. I and mean, some big names came in and we have those scans and they're there and they've been there for a while and we preserve them in like the cyrogenic freeze for at some point they, you know, they can be pulled out and used in, in anything. But a lot of actors didn't quite get it. And a lot of people didn't quite get it. They didn't get how important it was. And I remember that we had to sort of shut that down a bit during the pandemic because obviously nobody could go anywhere um, and are never sitting on it. But it's like, you know, you come back out of that and, and you, you have this last year and you have now the very moment we're in today where it's existential, you know, digital doubles, scans. I mean, everything we're doing, having the actors own that. I mean, Aaron and I were like laughing about it. It's like, that's exactly what we were going for. It's like, we, we were thought, how do we communicate this message? You know, this was like in, a, in 2018 or something. And now it's like, it's obvious. Um, where Redrick comes in, you know, everything that goes into an output image. I mean, if you have Pop or Beeple creating something, every 3D file, if Beeple does buy things from TurboSquid or, you know, things like that and uses that, we have a record of first upload. We have a record of all the pieces that go into that render so we can re-render it at any point. And the output of that is also composed. So you have proof of how something was created. And more importantly, you have, if you start to think about where that goes one layer further, if you have somebody's life change scan, um, and remember, you have to assume that things are encrypted end to end. I mean, we've done now, I have the DVD right here, like beautiful 4K Star Trek The Motion Pictures upside down. Uh, Blu-ray. Um, minutes of that were <laughs> rendered on the render network. November 21st, uh, 2021, I've got one of the frames. I, I just put that in one of my slides to show. Um, we have proof of how that was put together. You know, the, uh, the upload from a Paramount artist to, you know, with the Starship Enterprise, the canonical film model, all that. Imagine that with, with actors, right? So we have a model of a, a, of a person from their light sheet scan. We have ML, machine learning, right? That maybe animates that or does something back on their performance. But even rendering that on the render network, which we are, everything we would ever do for the Vision Pro, we're, no secret, we're building an app, we're hoping others can build apps that leverage the same system. They can go on the render network and there's a permission system, right? I mean, even using an asset or even creating or tracking how it works from the scan of the person to how it's used. And we are focused heavily on faces. So everything with AI that's taking a life scan and animating that, whether it's on the original person's performance or it's on another actor that they've given permission for, the estate's given permission for, all of that is encoded in there. And if without that, I don't know how you prove anything. I think the problem with deepfakes is that Adobe's got the right idea. There's a lot of um, interest around their content authorization system or content you know, authenticity, which is just metadata. But it's one of the ways where at least every edit you're doing to a Photoshop image is kind of recorded. It could be on chain. We have that for, I think, what comes next, which is the layers of, of, of spatial computing or rendering or holograms or, or people, right, or scans. Those are really important things. And I think my hope would be that at some point, you know, when you're seeing something that is generated, um, there is that little button that says, where did this come from? Like, what's the source on this thing? Give me the, you know, and if you don't have it, you, you really can't trust it. And it's going to become, I mean, you know, totally on sort of switch things around. Like the blue check mark on Twitter was the thing of like, hey, this thing came from somewhere. Somebody, this means something from a, you know, I mean, actually 400,000 blue check marks now. Anybody can pay to get one, whether that's improvement or not is up for debate, but I want to make it so that if you have something that is even just slightly edited, that there is a re that you see where that that came from, and certainly with with video, um, you know, there's you're going to see sensors where right out of the camera you're going to get you know a timestamp, some sort of digital certificate, and every edit made on top of that will will be on chain. We could do that for three D. That's where the render network has a secondary, equally important purpose beyond just the compute you know utility that you will need to create things for the Vision Pro or light fields or any version of the metaverse. Um, all of that is in, 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 inextricably woven together. And it's really important when it comes to people's performances, their faces, all of it. Um, and LifeSafe data isn't just a big scanning facility. It's something we can use to effectively take your face and map that to data that's been you know, created on LifeSafe and that you can use to drive a, an avatar that is you or not you.
but there's that's the thing with machine learning is that you could take you know hundreds of samples of people's skins and faces and we paid you know humans right to contribute to this have a royalty structure set up for that as soon as the sag after stuff is, is done there'll be payouts to the first hundred of them we, we didn't do ten thousand we just did a hundred um but you can create generative faces with that and if there's you know if, if you're paying to do that on the render network there's a royalty stream that flows back to the to that person um that kind of stuff is exactly what um i think you know the blockchain is absolutely useful for i mean any other system could get you know lost to oblivion and also bitrot is something we we want to yeah again decentralized storage of things is really important um still not a soft problem but getting there yeah, it's interesting. We've sort of plunged into this render network world through this probably what what would, you know, as important as this is, it's probably the sort of the secondary appeal of the render network, the first being just making the market to facilitate, um, you know, basically supply and demand of GPUs. Yeah. Can you um, sort of paint a picture for, obviously, you know, you've seen this coming for a long time, even, I think you said 2009, you filed a patent that was roughly on the subject of sort of decentralizing this marketplace. Um, and that's, you know, Bitcoin came out in 2009. You couldn't possibly have sort of being, you know, you're not foreseeing like Ethereum and Solana and everything like that, that you're now utilizing to to make the network actually happen. But the idea was there. And clearly, oh, yeah. this is not a case, like you mentioned earlier, people see like, oh, NFTs are hot. I'm going to go try to spin up a business plan for <laughs> NFTs and go pitch. This is something that like the need was genuinely there. And has only become, you know, increasingly supported by trends uh, that are sort of increasing the demand for GPUs. And there's a problem with supply. Can you sort of paint a picture of that? Why isn't this more comparable to like, uh, sort of, why can't people just like go to AWS or something like that? Um, why is decentralization like truly the solution in this case? Um, and how do you see that sort of playing out from where we are now very early? I think 2017, you guys launched sort of like a beta. 2020, um, sort of more of like the public release. So very, very early, we haven't really even had like a crypto hype cycle, which is when a lot of projects tend to sort of like build steam in the public eye, at least. And then that sort of becomes lasting or, or it blows up for a lot of projects or whatever. So um, where are we now and where are we going, I think, in the, in the render world? Yeah, I mean, the patent may have been filed in 2009, but I'm almost certain I started talking about with my patent attorney in 2004 about the, the render. It was that it was that far back. It's 20 years old as far as my, you know, my vision for it went, it just took me about five years to maybe file a patent, probably due to you know time and, and, and money at, the, at that point. But it is something where the, the, the so AWS is, is a very important piece of, of our trajectory. It wasn't like my plan was, I, 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 I was thinking decentralized GPUs were the only way we we're going to get them. Because I didn't see anybody taking putting GPUs in the cloud seriously. I actually went on stage with the CEO of AMD in 2009. To, you know, as part of it is like you put me on stage, I'll show you all this great rendering technology. I've gotten on GPUs. You need to announce you're building a petaflop of AMD GPUs. Give me that so I can build a, a data center of that so I can start this process going. And, and then he got you know, this uh, Dirk Meyer, who is yeah, brilliant guy, um, you know, got fired, and so AMD didn't come through. Autodesk, which makes 3D software, invested in Otoy for cloud streaming technology. I built ancillary to, to rendering, and they then helped us get a meeting with Amazon. And Amazon is like. Maybe if, if Otoy builds something for, for Autodesk and you can stream 3D applications, then we can put GPUs in the cloud and make money on it. And Jules, you pick whether it's AMD or NVIDIA. And it was down to the, uh, the G2 instance that eventually launched on AWS in 2013. I helped, you know, I helped validate or pick even, I, I would say. And before that happened, or around that time that was happening, Eric Schmidt, Ari just like sends him over to 
my place and, and I show him Octane running from a you know, GPU in the cloud to a web page. He's like, I know about everything. I did not know this existed. I need to make sure Google GPUs are part of this and I want to join your what you're doing. And I even just caught up with him, Trevor and I were just speaking to him about it month and a half ago, which is great. I mean, it's been about 10 years since you've been part of our journey. Um, and so Google and Amazon and Microsoft, right, the big three all built GPUs. And the big problem was that those are expensive GPUs. They're still expensive. NVIDIA, if you're going, you know, they do make the best GPUs for the kind of stuff we need. In the data center, um, you can't take a GeForce card from Best Buy, put it in a data center. EULA doesn't allow that. So as we were wrapping up, cloud rendering, right, on AWS, even Google and others, and you had a partner like MSG, right, they were, before they were doing the MSG sphere, they're doing plenty of things that required just massive amounts of renders, they were an investor in Otoy, and I just remember there was a job that was, you know, along those lines in that framework where it was like six months to complete, and they had to do it in three months, I mean, six months meaning all the GPUs in AWS, and Amazon was like, we cannot possibly invest more, you know, video, it's just too expensive, that's when I knew that I had to wind down you know, cloud rendering through Otoy on AWS or whatever, and maybe keep those, but like, there's no way to market this thing. Like one customer, one night would just, you know, saturate thousands and thousands of GPUs. And there's never been more than tens of thousands of these on, uh, you know, on, on the centralized cloud. So the render network was like, well, there's hundreds of millions of these cards that are just as powerful and probably one-tenth the cost is why so many people could afford them that are out there. And, uh, and NVIDIA doesn't block anything. In fact, Jensen, Loves this. I mean, he put me on stage in 2013, right? Right, as we were, you know, getting Octane and, and cloud rendering service going. Um, and so that's where the render network came in. When we turned that on, when I started seeing that there was a market for people paying for GPU power, just mining Ethereum and cryptocurrency, I was like, oh, I can take your Amazon dollar, I can charge you the actual spot instance price, which is a tenth of that or an eighth of that, and still pay you more than you would make mining Ethereum. So why wouldn't you want to make more money? And that's that, so we got about a million GPUs signed up when we launched this in 2017. Uh, Brandon Ike, uh, he launched basic attention token earlier that year. He helped us kind of get the crypto part up and running. And yeah, we were in beta for about three years. The first customer was John Noel, creator of Photoshop, runs ILM, worked with us on trying to get digital doubles for, for Tarkin and Leia and Rogue One. And he needed to do something for the Hayden Planetarium. He did it done in like hours. You know, it was going to take days rendering locally, flip the switch. He was our first customer and it worked. And since then we've been doing... I mean, I don't even know all the stuff that happens on it because it's end-to-end -end encrypted. You just hear about it when there's a support ticket, um, but a couple of Apple keynotes, you know, a bunch of movies and MSG Sphere content. And of course, a lot of stuff that's going to go on the Apple headset are all being rendered right now as we speak, most likely. Um, and it's been, it's been an interesting journey. But the, to this day, we still allow you to have AWS, Google, GPUs. I mean, they're partners. They've done a full, full announcements, but they're just a limited quantity. They're expensive. And you don't need those for a lot of rendering. And in fact, when Paramount made the decision to go and do Star Trek, the motion picture, the remastered version on tier two or tier three, which is end users machines, and it worked. It came in and out, and that data has now been scrubbed from the system. Um, you know, the, that, that was the last remaining vestige. It used to be a big deal when Amazon, or it was actually Google that did a Marvel movie with, with our cloud rendering service for Ant-Man and the Wasp in 2018. That was huge, because now it's running on the public cloud. We've now done movies, major Marvel movies, major, you know, things, or I should say major studio, big, you know, big temple studio films that are done on average users' machines, and therefore there is no limit. That means we can do anything and everything. Um, security is always an important, you know, factor. It's always a risk, but it's, it's, it's pretty secure. Um, that's, that's where the render network is at. And then when you factor in AI and all the machine learning stuff, rendering and machine learning are go hand in hand. In 2017, just finishing a render, we, we were one of the first companies to introduce AI denoising, which takes the render times down by one-tenth, you know, to one-tenth the amount of time needed. It's still part of all the jobs we're doing. So rendering, you know, ray, tracing rays and also doing machine learning is always going to be a mix. 
And the demand for that, both training and inference and rendering are all, you know, are all perfect. I mean, there's only a, people are very focused on, on large language models like GPT-4 that do require hundreds of millions of dollars in super high-end H100s, but there's probably 80 to 90% of the machine, you know, um, learning workloads, both training and inference that relate to images and media that can be done on a 3090 or a 48 gigabyte A6000s, which are out in the wild. Not to mention Apple has 128 GPUs that are going into, into laptops, right? So I will pause there, but that is my, that is sort of my web of, of you know, my idea map for, for where render sits along with all the public cloud GPUs that are out there. And, you know, even including, inclusive of the, the crazy year we've had with AI and the scarcity of GPUs that's, um, that's become really prominent and, and well understood in, in those past 12 to 13 months. Yeah, it must have been pretty interesting for you. Like you have these seeds of ideas and then you see like, you know, the LLMs come and sort of with a bang become a big thing. And then you see, you know, like NFTs and that's getting on these ideas of authenticity that you've been thinking about for like a long time. So it's like impossible to, or at least very difficult to see like the exact way that this thing is going to be introduced or when, but you're clearly like playing in the right stadium and, and playing the right game basically. And uh, the sort of potential for render seems it's pretty hard for me at least to like wrap my head around it's you know it's also like you know there's science there's rendering there, there's like various different applications where um i think it's not we've talked a lot about like sort of the entertainment industry and sort of like vr and the apple headset and nasa like uses it nasa renders their 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 animations on the render network like for the iss and i mean it's crazy i i was shocked when i saw that i was like wow didn't even know they were using it. So yeah, I mean, there's so many applications that are obviously well above and beyond the media entertainment space. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's just crazy. So um, I know we're coming up on time and I, I want to be respectful. I really appreciate you taking the time that you have. Uh, last question before we wrap up, and then maybe you can just sort of end by telling people where they can go to, to learn more and everything like that. But being such a long term thinker, thinking 20 years ahead, um, you know, and, and having been doing that since you were a teenager, basically, I want to hear, you know, what you have in mind for like the short term, actually, like what you think is most feasible and around the corner, whether that's, you know, in regards to render network or what you're doing at Otoy or, you know, more at the meta level with what's going on with Apple or OpenAI or Neuralink or whatever it might be. What's got you excited for like, you know, the rest of the 2020s, let's call it. I'll give you an extra two years, so seven years. Oh, wow. That's a long time. That's like a, that's a eons and in, in, in all these things. Well, let's start with the very short term. I mean, the Apple headset going out next year is, is a, it is a big deal. I mean, I, I was equally excited when Carmack was pushing, you know, Oculus 10 years ago, and that was something that was going out there. But I mean, Facebook is not Apple. They're, they're very different. Meta, sorry, excuse me. They're different companies. They have different approaches. Apple's taking this very seriously. They're gonna, it's a, for them, it's a long-term play as well. This is the beginning of something. I mean, you have to imagine that, let's say that this thing weighs a certain amount. It's, it's, you know, maybe it's not frictionless, but imagine that it's a pair of contact lenses in 2029. Right. I mean, that's going to be aggressive. Maybe it'll take another 10 years to, to get there, but it will be something like that. You can see an operating system that's designed for your eyeballs. The no screens start to emerge from a company that's the most valuable company in the world. That's a big deal. We are 100% focused on that. Render is a huge part of that. You need content for this thing. You will need to go to the render network to make it happen. We need that. I, you know, we have a ton of GPUs here locally. It's, it's, it's just, you just need it. Um, that's the first thing that I'll say is, is, is imminent. Light field displays are going to happen at the high end. I mean, you know, location-based entertainment, theme parks, those things will also leverage the render network for those pieces. People wants to do, you know, physical pieces, right? That are he's doing OLED screens that, that are very clever. They track where you're looking. So it looks like a hologram, but when you can just have it be a hologram and it looks like a piece of physical art, mind-blowing. 
whenever those things, whether it's by the end of this decade or not, that you get to holographic displays that don't require goggles, that are totally just, you know, friction free. I mean, maybe those, those go into high end, you know, home theaters, that'll be a big deal. On the AI front, I would say that render is a huge part to play in that. There's so much to be done on the visual, on the media side. I mean, I'm, LLMs are another layer entirely. And of course, you do have things like Dolly that are plugged really nicely into, into ChatGPT. But, you know, you look at, at one of the things that OpenAI is doing really well is they're creating, you know, a plugin system. Like, you know, the thing they just announced, you can create your own GPT. Terrific. Like, I, I think ChatGPT4 is fantastic. Like, I can imagine 5 million things I could do with it connected to render and launch something in the next three months that I want to, that I'd like to see happen, right? And that's great. I mean, you know, you can always swap out an LLM or a render. Like, you know, we support other renders on render besides the one Otoy makes. So there's, there's tons to be done there. And I do think though that, that a lot of what's going to happen is there's still a missing piece in generative AI, which how do you generate a beautiful, perfectly quiescent 3D scene? Otoy needs to solve that problem. I mean, if we don't, somebody else will, but I think we can get there really, you know, really quickly. And the way that it still matter is on things like the Vision Pro at first. And then it'll it'll emerge into other forms and other factors as like light field displays and other things come to come to you know come to happen. But the um the part where we can let people experiment with AI and generate AI in a visual way, I mean, I think that plugging into other other models, supporting any arbitrary type of AI is helpful, but there's already such great pieces. The render networks, I think value proposition is why it's bigger than just Otoys, it can ingest any render any software stack as long as there's some sort of system or model that allows you to compose these things. That's that's the piece that I think we're going to be focused on a lot in the coming year, both in the Oto side, both on the render network side, and also just as part of like we're part of five or six different standard bodies: the Metaverse Standards Forum, Kronos, uh, you know, Academy Software Foundation. All those things are important factors to help identify and create these um, these standards. And the reason we're also on Solana is that you know Raj and Tolly have been great about helping us. I mean, they're able to build things on, on chain that I think are useful for the things we need on the render network, but also those things could like become standards for future metaverses, NFTs, even if they're adopted on other chains. So that's all things that are in the, like, the next 12 to 18 months. By the year 2029, I think we'll have, um, we'll probably have a pair of pretty robust glasses. We'll probably have a lot more light field displays and we'll probably have a lot more um, AI that's able to, you know, to fill 90% of the work that's busy work right in the creative process today. And we'll see, we'll see how that plays out over the next seven years. Awesome. Well, uh, I know we're up on time, but again, I really appreciate it. It's been an uh, awesome conversation and uh, it's just been fun trading ideas. I think you've gotten a really interesting view of the future and it's been great reading it and now getting it uh, in person or, or rather, you know, in real time. So really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I guess anywhere else you want people to follow you. I know you have the domain name x.io. So Elon's got x.com. Yeah. You've got x.io. I got x.io a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, you beat it. You beat him to the punch, I guess. And then, uh, yeah. you know, vendors on Twitter and uh, you're on Twitter. Yeah. Anywhere else you want to send people before we wrap? No, Twitter now known as x, you know, at Jules Urbach, at Otoy, at Render Network. Those, you know, if you follow our social media links, those three will get you probably connected to all the other, all the other pieces. So I would start with them. Perfect. Well, uh, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jake. It was a pleasure.